the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times joins me to discuss the latest economic data points for the Eurozone and to predict what they might mean in terms of the future health of the Irish economy and mortgage interest rates. You'll hear from Cliff in a few moments. In the second half of the show, Kira O'Brien tells me all about the new Web Summit CEO, Katrin Marr. She also explains why Twitter's valuation has more than halved in the past year under Elon Musk's ownership and explains the travails of WeWork, the office-sharing group that appears to be on the verge of bankruptcy. First, data from the European Commission this week showing that inflation across the Eurozone dropped to 2.9% in October. But GDP also ticked down, opening up fears of a recession in the region. Cliff Taylor joined me in the studio to explain what's going on behind the figures. Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Now, some good news yesterday in terms of Eurozone data in that inflation across the Eurozone as a whole dropped to uh, 2.9% year on year in October. I think the Irish figure was uh, 3.6%, which in itself is uh, heading in the right direction. So those suggest that those uh, 10 uh, in a row ECB rate rises uh, are doing their job and pushing uh, inflation down to the sort of 2% target level that the ECB has. Um, however, on the flip side, we also had GDP data for the Eurozone yesterday, and that shows that the um, sector as a whole contracted in the third quarter. So there is the possibility now that uh, for the second half of the year, uh, the Eurozone will effectively be in recession. And I think we were keeping it out of recession earlier in the year when Irish exports were flying and so on. But um, that situation has reversed. We're, we're actually recording our own declines in, uh, in GDP growth, um, which is uh, very interesting. So I suppose it begs the question, as to whether the ECB has, on the one hand, the ECB interest rates, on the one hand, are doing the job in terms of pushing down inflation, but are they also pushing us into a recession? Yeah, this has been the dilemma for the ECB all along. I suppose there's been such a big surge in inflation and interest rates were so low when this all started that they've moved a long way very quickly. And, you know, traditional economic theory over many years has thought that interest rates take time to, to have their impact. You know, it, it takes time to feed through to the amount of money that banks lend out, credit provision, spending, you know, six months, a year, whatever. So the ECB has been pushing up rates, as you say, very aggressively, 10 increases. And there are risks on both sides of that strategy that, you know, they certainly started increasing interest rates too late compared to other central banks, but they then moved very quickly in response. And the pace of interest rate increases over the past 18 months has been unprecedented in the ECB's history. We've never seen anything like it. And rates are now at pretty high levels in the context of recent years. So there certainly is a risk, I think, that the ECB have gone too far too fast. We're seeing the the forecast impact, I suppose, of what they have what they have done. As you say, inflation is finally coming down pretty rapidly now. The main contributors in October to the Eurozone decline were lower energy prices, not surprisingly and lower food prices. Uh, so they've been the two things that have been pushing inflation upwards. Now, the one, I suppose, worry from the ECB's point of view is that so-called core inflation, when you take out these volatile elements, is still over 4%. So the ECB will say, look, 
inflation has spread right through the economy. It's spread to wages. It's spread to prices more generally. And we need to keep interest rates high to finally shake it out of the system. Now, we don't Just remind us what gets stripped out to give us the core number. Yeah, it, it, uh, food and energy, this, the two volatile elements, the two that have increased most quickly. Um, so it is notable, I suppose, that you take those out mm. and inflation is still high. Nonetheless, it does seem to be declining very quickly now. As you say, the price is being paid uh, in the in the general economy because there's no doubt that higher interest rates are one of the factors that have led the eurozone economy to such a low growth level. Uh, I mean, you could pretty much say, I guess, that the eurozone economy is now stagnating. You know, it's not it's not falling; it's it's not growing; it's it's stagnating. And funnily enough, you refer to the Irish impact there, and if you take out yeah. the if you take out the Irish figures from the latest uh, eurozone data which show a 0.1% fall uh, you get to kind of you get to kind of 0% uh, so it is the Irish decline in GDP in the third quarter which has ticked the number down into negative territory for the Eurozone interesting isn't it because it we is. were keeping yeah, absolutely keeping it in positive territory for yeah. so long because our economy was in GDP terms was booming yeah and it is uh, so what's going on in Ireland it's purely related to uh, to GDP and to exports so as we know, we had this huge distortion to Irish GDP after 2015 when the big foreign multinationals relocated a lot of their intellectual property to Ireland. That increased the kind of distortions in Irish GDP figures that we have seen over many years. So basically, as exports soared from Ireland and the money came into Ireland from the, the earnings of these intellectual property assets, uh, Irish GDP soared much higher than the than the domestic economy over the, over the past few years. But it's been driven by a number of things which have very limited links to the Irish economy. And one of the key ones over the last few years has been so-called contract manufacturing. So what that means is that there is a multinational, international headquarters in Ireland arranging from Ireland for goods to be produced elsewhere in the world. So for China, example, Taiwan, Apple whatever. arranging yeah. for phones to be made in China, pharmaceutical companies <clears throat> arranging for pharma to be produced in Belgium or wherever. And that's been adding to our GDP figures while it doesn't really have much impact on, on the Irish economy. So that led to our GDP figures going, going crazy for a few years. And now the opposite is happening. So exports are falling off. That contract manufacturing is being pulled back, obviously. Export markets are weak. The Chinese market is, is is weak, as we know. There are some maybe geopolitical factors in supply chains now, and companies are reorganizing stuff. So our GDP figures are falling. So just as was the case while GDP was going up so fast, it was exaggerating what was happening. GDP now going down is exaggerating what's happening in the Irish economy as well. But nonetheless, when you look at export figures, when you look at consumer spending figures, there's no doubt that things are slowing in the economy as well. And the growth is, real growth, if you like, is 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 slower now than it was, say, this time last year. So I guess you could you could rationalise that by saying that the big post-COVID bounce is over and that we're also suffering a bit of a, a bit of a hangover, if you like, because during COVID, some of the big pharma companies clearly had huge increases in exports from Ireland uh, related to vaccines and, 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 and medicines. And some of that has been pull back now because uh, the demand for those products has has fallen. That said, people in the sector with links to the sector say that pharma investment has still been very strong over the last few years. So 
well, uh, Pfizer, though, is going to uh, cut jobs. It's signaled Absolutely, that it's going to cut yeah. jobs. Yeah, well, that is, that is symptomatic, Ireland. I suppose, <clears throat> of, of what's going on. But And I had results out yesterday showing that um, the COVID uh, vaccine bounce, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. has definitely Yeah, the, the flip side is gone. that there's, there's been huge, that's that's true, and I think that's those factors are playing into our export figures and, and into our real economy as well as our GDP economy, if you want to call it that. Uh, the flip side is that there's been huge farm investment announced to biopharma, all kinds of farm investment announced here by a whole range of companies over the last three or four years. So those people with connections to the sector say, you know, that will feed through over the next few years to higher exports, to higher more jobs and stuff. So, But if we look at it, I suppose there's a number of indicators there which might suggest that things are going in the wrong direction with multinationals. We, we've had, you know, a year ago we had lots of tech uh, layoffs and that spilled over into this year Probably not done uh, yeah. in that sense. AIB had Purchasing manage- Managers Index out this morning suggesting uh, a real slowdown in manufacturing and hiring has uh, stagnated. I mentioned uh, Pfizer. We've seen the last couple of months corporation tax receipts have have softened, yeah. um, have been below what was expected. Uh, and now we have these uh, GDP figures. So the indicators are all pointing in one direction yeah. and it's it's, it's no not more. upwards. Yeah, I I think there's no doubt that the economy is coming off the boil. Is the party over? <laughs> to the extent that we saw these crazy uh, GDP figures and... Leprechaun uh, economics is what Paul Krugman... That's right, yeah, back in 2015 when yeah. uh, GDP went up by, I think the initial report was 25%, I think it was pulled back a bit in subsequent revisions by the CSO, but nonetheless, crazy stuff. There's no doubt, I think you're right, that the economy is, has come off the boil. And, and, you know, no surprise that it has because the same factors that are affecting the rest of Europe and the Eurozone are affecting Ireland. We've kind of got used to Ireland being almost separate and, and, and able to operate at a different level from the rest of Europe. And we have had an, an extraordinary run. Uh, and maybe we're just kind of returning to Earth um, and returning to kind of more normal growth rates. It's something that's been forecast by bodies like the Central Bank and the SRI for a number of years now. Hasn't that, you know, never actually happened. But maybe, maybe, maybe it is happening now because, as you say, the figures are all a bit weaker and, and we're being affected by the same factors. Higher interest rates are affecting consumer spending. There's no doubt about that. They're also affecting investment by businesses because the, the bar for getting a return on a business investment is increased. Higher costs have had a big impact on business. We all know that over the last uh, few years. And because our main export markets are weak, our main export markets are in Europe, uh, China, the US, all gone through their own particular issues. The US maybe not so much as the others. Uh, but our export markets are going a lot less strongly. So you would have to say that the outlook is for is for weaker growth here. And yet we had a 14 billion euro budget. Just, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, just last month. One of the interesting things would be to watch the exchequer returns at the end of this week to see if the corporation tax that has allowed those multi-billion budgets is, is, is continuing to wobble a bit. The real indicator will be the November figures, which we'll get in early December. So that'll be very interesting to watch. Um, but there's no doubt as well that that, that that underlying, that underlying, I suppose, the slowdown, that the, the basics of the economy, there's still, there's still a fair bit of strength there. Employment has grown to record levels. It, it, it looks like it's topped out to some extent in terms of jobs growth, some sectors winning, some sectors losing from a position a few years ago when everything was going in the right direction. But still, it's 
the job numbers have been solid. The income numbers have been solid, uh, notwithstanding, you know, some weakness in the tech sector. Uh, there was a report out this week from Morgan McKinley pointing that kind of more subdued picture, I suppose you might say, for higher level jobs, but still a demand uh, for a lot of uh, for, for in a lot of sectors, and still labour shortages in a lot of sectors. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch the Irish economy now over the next over the next six months, heading into twenty twenty four. I think we're certainly we're certainly looking at slower growth. We've kind of come up against our capacity, I think, in a lot of areas as well. Uh, we all know the problems of capacity and housing. Same applies in areas like energy and water. Um, if you talk to anyone in business, these are these are the things that that are worrying them. Why do we seem to be getting a, a bit of traction on house building or the building of new homes? Because yeah. uh, Sherry Fitzgerald, I noticed because I wrote about it this morning, in their uh, statutory accounts noted that last year we produced almost 30,000 units. Yeah, and it looks like 32 this year and it could be 35 next year. So the vast amount of money that the government is throwing at the sector is, is having Finally an impact. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's supporting demand via the help to buy and various other schemes. It's also supporting, supporting supply now very, very via these, the Cree Crana scheme and, and various other five or six other schemes that are coming it's providing in providing support to some people who got, and we have evidence of this, particularly in the help to buy scheme, who could afford to buy their Absolutely, homes yeah. without that support. I think uh, Amazar's report said it wasn't far off, wasn't far off half of all help to buy applicants were in that position. So I wouldn't be a great fan of the help to buy scheme myself, but it certainly helps people get on the ladder at the moment. But I think it also has an effect on pushing up prices, uh, although the Mazars report was was kind of uh, neither here nor there on that one. I also think it's leading to houses being built and the market being set up in a lot of areas so people can avail of the scheme. So, for example, builders can afford to build houses and sell them for just under the 500,000 limit out in the commuter counties. Uh, well, they can't afford to do that in central Dublin generally. So so that's where the houses are being built. And that's where a lot of people are buying. And that's the opposite of the, that urban sprawl is the opposite of what we're meant to be doing for in terms of our national spatial targets, which is developing brownfield, moving people closer to city centres so they don't have to commute as much, so they don't have to live in their cars as much. Yeah. I anyway. suppose what, I, what Irish mortgage holders are going to want to know, uh, Cliff, uh, as a result of these figures this week, is that a signal? Is the 2.9% inflation number for October a signal that these ECB rate rises are over for now? I think so, yeah. I think the likelihood is yes. Certainly the markets think that. And the markets, in fact, think we might start to see some small declines by the middle of next year. The ECB are not going to give any hint of that for some months yet because they're going to want to keep their foot on the pedal, if you like. And keep inflation on the way downwards. Uh, so I, th- I, I think we probably are. The one there's always a caveat to these things, of course. And the one caveat, the one obvious caveat that you would see at the moment is what's going on in the Middle East, the conflict in Gaza, and the World Bank did some work this week when it looked at the potential impact on on, uh, on oil prices. Three scenarios ranging from oil prices, so oil prices are around $90, $90 a barrel now. And that's roughly where they might stay if this wasn't happening. The uh, the World Bank did three scenarios. In a mild scenario, prices might go up to 100 A middling scenario, up to 110 115 and And, you know, a worst case scenario when we have a 
real spread of the conflict and uh, oil supplies through the Straits of Hormuz are blocked of kind of 150 euros a barrel. So you could see that having an impact on inflation and, and entering into the ECB's mm. calculation. But the fl- it, it works both ways as well because it would certainly slow growth. Uh, Western well, economies are a lot less oil dependent believe, than they used believe- to be. Do you believe those assumptions on oil prices? I mean, I seem to recall 10 or 12 years ago, we were told we'd reached peak oil. And um, sure. I remember people in the industry telling me we were heading for $200. And it was about $100 a barrel at that time, which was extraordinary. And we were heading for $200 and maybe north of it, uh, ultimately. The, the days of cheap oil were over uh, and it turned out they weren't. I mean, at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia and other... Uh, oil-producing nations, they can turn on the taps and produce more oil and push the price down. Yeah, I think you're right. I think... Or keep it at a level that's... Keep it at a level. I think they can. The one risk is that this turns into a, turns into a, a massive war in the Middle East and that oil supply lines are disrupted. None of us have any idea where that's going to happen. Sure. Let's let's hope it doesn't uh, for, for much more important reasons than, than oil prices. And perhaps... The likely scenario, certainly the scenario the markets seem to be operating on at the moment is that it won't happen and that oil prices will remain roughly where they yeah. are. But we we also know from past experiences that the markets can get that badly wrong too. As Just, indeed they can, their interest rate forecast. Of course. Just going back to the mortgage interest rates, bonkers.ie, um, Derek Cassidy yeah. bonkers.ie put out an assessment at the end of uh, last week, I think it was. Well, Bank of Ireland increased their variable rate for the first time since the ECB started increasing rates in July of last year. Now, the Bank of Ireland, it should be said, the Bank of Ireland variable rate had been completely out of whack for, for years. It was very high compared to what they were offering in terms of uh, fixed rates. Um, so uh, the ECB has caught up with it and, and now they're increasing it. But Derek Cassidy of Bonkers.ie was suggesting that this is probably just the first of a series of interest rate increases that we're going to see from the Irish lenders, regardless of whether the ECB puts its rate up or not. Yeah, this is, uh, I suppose, mortgage holders fall into a few different buckets. So the trackers, the tracker holders obviously will hope now that their rates have... Uh, have, have They've been hit with have, the 10 have, increases. Have, have peaked. Yeah. Uh, and at the other end, those on fixed rates uh, haven't been affected, but we'll be watching the market to see what rates they might come off their fixed rate arrangements because typically people are fixed for, I don't know, three, four, five years. So a lot of people, I think it's about 70,000 a year come off in each of the next few years. So there's a lot of people going to be watching the market very carefully. And the variable rates obviously are a factor, are going to be a factor in that calculation. And the banks did hold off in general, for a long period in terms of passing through the increases to variable rate mortgage holders. Um, not entirely clear why they did that. Perhaps they they fear, you know, some bad debts might might work, lurk in that group. Um, they didn't need to in- increase it. I mean, in Bank of Ireland's case, because true, the variable high. rate was Absolutely. so high yeah. relative to fixed rates that were in the market. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, they just wanted people to go and fix. They didn't want people absolutely. to essentially. Yeah, and should the, the variable rate market was kind of was kind of over for a long time anyway, uh, and there would have been relatively small, still relatively significant numbers of people on 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 the older variable rates, but generally with perhaps smaller mortgages on average, uh, more established loans. Um, so they're gonna they're gonna feel a bit of the pain now, um, and I think. As I say, most of them probably have 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 older mortgages and and lower outstanding balances, and perhaps won't be hit too hard. There will be will be some that that are no doubt, 
Uh, but the real import of that is going to be what it means for people moving off fixed rates, the choices they face in terms of do they do they fix again, what's the variable rate that they might go on to if they don't want to fix again, what that choice is. And I think that's going to be very important for the market over the next few years because there have been some surveys showing that, not surprisingly, borrowers are getting a bit nervous and new first-time borrowers as well, of course. Okay, Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. We're going to take a short break now. When I'm back, I'll be talking to Kira O'Brien about Web Summit's new CEO and a halving of Twitter's valuation in the years since Elon Musk took over. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. This week saw the appointment of a new CEO at WebSummit, following Paddy Cosgrave's recent resignation. Separately, we discovered that the valuation of Twitter, or X as it's now known, has more than halved since Elon Musk took over the business. And WeWork, the office sharing group, is reported to be prepared to file for bankruptcy in the United States. Kira O'Brien is across all of these stories, and I began by asking her to tell me about the new WebSummit CEO, Katrin Marr. Catherine Maher is the former head of the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the company behind uh, Wikipedia. And under her watch, you know, the, the company managed to well, gain the trust of a lot of people and more importantly, keep that trust and grow to like there's more than a billion users of, of Wikipedia worldwide. So, you know, she comes with a lot of experience. She comes with, I suppose, a good pedigree behind her and a reputation for, you know, not being a, a shrinking violet. So I think probably the prime person to take on the challenge that is Web Summit. Yeah, now Paddy Cosgrave only stepped down as CEO a couple of weeks ago. So following comments he made about uh, the conflict between Israel and Hamas. So clearly they didn't go through uh, an elongated uh, headhunting process. How did it come about that Katra Marr got the job so quickly? Well, they've been very quiet uh, as to, you know, the, the actual recruitment process for this, because when we were asked, you know, who was going to be in charge, we were told, you know, that there was a team of experienced executives who had been in place for a long time and that they would be looking after the, the day-to-day running of the business until... Uh, a new chief executive was appointed. And, you know, obviously, usually how things happen is somebody's appointed, appointed as an interim chief executive and, and keeps an eye on things. But this didn't happen. And it was actually, I, th- I was kind of taken aback then when I saw on Monday morning that they had appointed a new chief executive because it was quite quick. Um, there's no kind of word yet as to, you know, who suggested Catherine Marr or, you know, why she decided that this was the role for her. But she did leave uh, the Wikimedia Foundation in 2021. And at the time she said she was looking for a new challenge. Um, and I suppose she certainly will have that uh, with Web Summit, you know, it, behind the controversy. It is a successful events business. It is a global events business. So I suppose having a more global figure would fit well with it. Yeah, now a lot of sponsors and partners have pulled out of Web Summit. We've been reporting on this over the past uh, couple of weeks. Is it definitely going to go ahead on the 13th of November? Well, they've said all along, yes, that it will go ahead and it will go ahead with a full programme. But yes, there are obviously some high profile emissions now from both the speakers list and the sponsors list. And I think, you know, if it will go ahead this year, um, 
I think it'll be a very different atmosphere. Obviously, now they have a new CEO. It's got to put a new spin on things. But one of the tasks that she's going to have ahead of her is, you know, persuading people, uh, first of all, to trust Web Summit again, because, you know, the, the company itself, obviously, that there's not an issue with the company itself, but the former chief executive, Paddy Cosgrave, and Web Summit were so closely intertwined it's very difficult to separate one from the other and you know you you hear web summit you think paddy cosgrave or at least we do um and i think you know trying to distance the company from the the comments that were made and from that particular controversy is going to be a task in itself and persuading those sponsors to come back on board or other people to replace them is going to be a task in itself because you you know you have to i suppose make it clear uh where the company stands and I suppose figuring out where the company stands on all that is is going to be the first task and then persuading those sponsors, you know, to, to, to come back on board and to come back and those speakers to come back next year maybe is another thing. And to try, I suppose, smooth over those, um, I suppose, all the, the, the controversy of the past couple of weeks, you know, that's not going to be a, an easy task in itself, I think. So will Paddy Cosgrave be at the Web Summit? Well, that's the question. I think that's on everybody's lips. And I think most people are going to be on Paddy Watch. And I think it's it's going to, I suppose it's, it's worth noting that, yes, he stepped down from the board. Yes, he stepped back as chief executive, but he still owns the majority of that company. So 81%, 81% of, the company, of that yeah. company so, is so his. So what, what influence is he, is he going to have or has he slipped into the shadows? Well, he hasn't really been um, vocal on Twitter since all this, or sorry, X, since all this happened. Um He's been, I suppose, keeping his head down a bit. Whether or not it'd be too soon for him to, to pop up at Web Summit, I, I think it is too soon. I think it would be a mistake if he did. But, you know, obviously he would have his own opinions on that and the company would have their own opinions on that. They may not necessarily align with mine. Um, in terms of the influence, I mean, as I said, he is the majority owner of the company. And I think that's going to be another hurdle that Web Summit will have to overcome. And there has been calls in recent weeks from his co-founders to sell his stake in the company because, you know... It, he is still associated with the company. Um, he is the majority owner of the company. And if people are still feeling that they can't do business with Paddy Cosgrave as chief executive of Web Summit, you know, yes, okay, there's going to be a different chief executive there. And I don't think that, you know, you could argue that that um, Catherine Marr is just, you know, kind of a figurehead. And then she is a very capable, very uh, strong leader. And she will have her own uh, way of doing things. But in the background, you still do have the fact that he, owns the company and therefore indirectly benefits from any changes that is made to Web Summit. And some people may not like that uh, and they may still continue to boycott Web Summit as long as he is involved even in that ownership role. Now, you mentioned X, formerly known as Twitter, of course, now owned by Elon Musk. He paid $44 billion for the privilege of taking it over about a year ago. But we now know that uh, some stock options that have been awarded to employees recently valued the business at just $19 billion. Yes, and that's a significant write-down from what he paid. Now, I suppose, okay, you can look at it two ways. Uh, the real question here is asking, is this valuation um, a bug or a feature? Is this, you know, was this his plan all along? Because people have speculated that maybe he's been trying to drive the value down so he can buy back the debt for pennies on the dollar. I'm not sure exactly where this one is going, to be honest, but I'm not massively surprised. I don't think anyone is surprised that the valuation on Twitter has fallen so 
I suppose, precipitously over the last year. First of all, a lot of people thought that when he bought it, he was overpaying. Um, and I think probably he thought he was overpaying as well, because as we, if you remember rightly, he, he tried to back I out of the sale. It. Yes, he did. I mean, it was like the, 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 the dog that caught the car, you know, he was so vocal about, you know, taking over the platform and stamping out the bots and stamping out the spam, neither of which has happened, by the way, um, that, you know, when he finally got it, he thought, oh, hang on a second, maybe I don't actually want this. And there was all, like, there was there was legal action going through to force him to go through with the sale because obviously for shareholders at the time, the price that he was paying was pretty good. But as we've seen now, this is uh, in a memo to uh, about stock options to staff, we've seen that it's now valued at 19 billion. Now, if I was a bank who'd lo- loaned him money, and think about it, there's about 13 billion, like, I think 13 and a half billion that came from a group of banks to help him buy Twitter. I mean, that's, not a good look. Uh, and look, this is this is what happens in business. You know, banks take a risk every time they loan somebody money. But, you know, do you really want to be backing something that has fallen so badly? And I, there's, there's been kind of talk about whether or not this is, I suppose, the, the death grip now for Twitter, you know, where it's going to be a face-off, I suppose, with the banks to see who blinks first, you know, Will uh, Elon, you know, will, will he lose control of the company or will the banks just cave and sell the debt to whoever wants it at a discount and just cut their losses and go? But, you know, you can see in the past, was the last year um, when he first went in, I mean, God, he went in with the worst dad joke ever, you know, like you know, he owns Twitter, let that sink in and he was carrying an actual sink, you know, and that kind of set the tone for what was coming for the rest of the year. And since then, you know, there've been a lot of changes made, you know, he had some wide ranging, um, some wide ranging layoffs, which weren't implemented in the best way. I believe, you know, it was... Well, they were brutal. I mean, he fired a load of people and, and it was pretty brutal. Oh yeah, no, but it wasn't even well thought out. I mean, look, any layoffs are going to be brutal but this was just you know people were finding out that they had lost their job as they lost access to internal systems some of them were in the middle of meetings when all this was happening like it was quite possibly the worst example of how to do things and but this is how he does it and this is how he has worked in the past with Tesla unfortunately for him as he found out, I suppose, here in Ireland, you know, there are labour laws and there are, there are other jurisdictions where you just can't go in and decide, you know, I'm firing this person. There has to be consultation. There has to be a process followed. And if you don't follow that process, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the, the labour courts. And that is exactly what happened. Um, also, when you scattergun fire people like that and you don't, the, the reason why they, they have these consultations as well is to identify the roles that can be safely eliminated. And we've seen from the past year that, you know, Twitter, as it was back then, you know, yes, it had its glitches every now and again, but like, it's so much worse now. And, you know, somebody makes a change somewhere and all of a sudden it's just, you know, a whole server goes down and people can't access it and people can't follow external links. You know, there's been problem after problem after problem. Now, if you want to create, as he has publicly said uh, as recently as I think five days ago, that he wants to create an everything app. He wants to turn what was Twitter now X into the everything app. You better make sure it works because he's given his staff, I think it was a year to find a way to replace people's bank accounts. You know, so basically saying, look, people won't even need a bank account anymore. Everything financial will go through X. Now for me, that's not happening. I mean, I am not handing over any financial, any control of my finances to a company that can't even keep the lights on at times, you know, that can't keep its service working. And look, we know that, you know, outages happen, you know, fintechs have had outages, banks have had outages, but the approach to a lot of stuff on Twitter seems to be like the, the, the old thing on Facebook was, you know, move fast and break things, but like it was break things with a purpose and not necessarily your own 
product. Um, whereas with Twitter and X, what we've seen is they move fast. It doesn't seem to be particularly well thought out. It's not even tested um, to the extent that it would have been before. And then they roll stuff out and then they have to roll it back. So it, it's chaotic. I mean, I am not giving over control of any facet of my life to a company that's that chaotic. And I wouldn't be the only one. You know, you need to have a, a level of trust. There is no trust there. I mean, and in fact, the trust and safety teams at Twitter, I think, were the one of the first things that were decimated. So now you have not only an app that wants to be all things to all people, hasn't really figured out what it is to anybody yet. But also then, you know, the stuff that they were they were supposed to do in the past and the stuff that they had a bit of expertise in the past, you know, identifying the harmful content, taking it down. And, you know, they, they, they came in for quite a bit of criticism in the past about how they did that. But, you know, at least there was some sort of system there to try and, and pull that down. In the years since he's taken over, I mean, there's been various reports and various studies that have identified an increase in hate speech, anti-Semitism, um, abusive content on Twitter slash X. And, you know, that doesn't generate an awful lot of trust in the system. We've also seen the fact that, you know, he, he's got this um, subscription tier that arguably was never going to work. But anyway, so, you know, when you when you sign up for, for um, this X premium or what was Twitter blue at one point, you get fired to the top of replies. So now, you know, I mean, it, it, Twitter in itself and X in itself is now becoming less and less useful to people because well, you have to wade through the, the, the spam bots who've paid for their premium subscriptions and the Nazis and the racists and all that stuff because all of those float right to the top and any content that you would have engaged with, which was the whole point of the platform, is now so far down that it's not useful. And we've seen the impact of that is that, you know, our advertisers have deserted it and he can say, that there are advertisers coming back but yeah but not the big name guys the the big names who would have contributed so much to to twitter's revenue in the past have largely abandoned it and i don't know about you but like when i do go on x these days all i get is you know ads for basically bad games that aren't and that also come with community notes because they're not even real games yeah okay you, I, I doubt you've sold people on uh, the idea of subscribing to uh, the new X but let's move on uh, we work the office sharing group plans to file for bankruptcy as early as uh, next week according to the Wall Street Journal um, the SoftBank group backed company struggles with a, a massive debt pile and hefty losses now we work have a presence in Ireland and they signed a contract to take over most of the old central bank building on uh, off Dame Street, so a very, very much a local interest uh, in the story. What's going on there? What's gone wrong for them? So basically, what's happened is, look, WeWork from 2019 has been kind of hit by setback after setback. Uh, its business model is it takes these long-term leases and then flogs space to people on a short-term basis. Um, the reports in recent days have kind of centered around the fact that they might be filing for, for bankruptcy in the US. And when you think about it, in 2019, before the whole thing crashed, like at its peak, WeWork was valued at $47 billion. Um, in, since then, obviously, you know, its, its chief executive, Adam Newman, was ousted, uh, pandemic and and remote work has seriously hit demand for its services because people are now working from home. You know, they don't necessarily need an office to go into. So then you add in borrowing costs are on the rise. We work to put it in context, has 777 locations in 39 countries around the world, probably a few more now. But 
at the when it started, you know, there was they had this massive spurt of growth and they were signing leases all over the place. And that kind of contributed to the 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 massive implosion in, in 2019. And they were looking at you know, floating back then, uh, they were looking at a stock market flotation and then they had to abandon it. And um, when they did go public in 2021, it was at a much lower valuation than they'd hoped. And SoftBank, you know, it's invested tens of billions to to basically support uh, WeWork, but you know, it's still losing money hand over fist. Um, so it's it is all of this is not a massive surprise. So in August, um, WeWork said there was kind of doubt around its ability to continue operations. It's also lost uh, loads of executives this year, including its chief executive Sandeep Mathrani. Um, and then. This week, it also told the U.S. financial regulators that it agreed, it basically agreed with some of its creditors to postpone payments temporarily for some of its debt. So the fact that it might be looking at bankruptcy, not a massive surprise. Um, obviously, bad news for anybody who is, you know, kind of dependent on the company for a living or office space because, you know, where it goes from here is anybody's guess. Uh, it's a bit of a wait and see, you know, if they will actually file for bankruptcy or if somebody will, you know, there is some rescue plan in place. But, you know, that's going to be a developing story over the next few weeks. Yeah, sure. Okay, Kira O'Brien, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor and Kira O'Brien for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY, building a better working world.